You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to another exciting week here at the conservative conscience powered by Westwood One Podcast Network here at Conservative Review. And this is your one-stop shop for true constitutional conservative news and views divorced from the soap opera, from the false dichotomies of our uh, competitors. I don't even want to call them competitors because sadly nobody is operating in the space of what it means to actually deal with true public policy issues from a conservative perspective, real philosophical grounding in our founding, as well as an understanding of the specific issues. And, uh, you know, I said exciting week, but the truth be told, I'm really hoping for a dull, boring week. I just need a break. I need a time off. I need, man, usually from Wednesday afternoon-ish, sometimes Wednesday around noon if I could swing it on Thanksgiving week, from then until Monday morning of the following week, I just unplug totally. This year, I'm not even traveling anywhere. So I'm going to be home with the family, just immediate family, and really looking forward to some of my home improvement projects. I'm already getting get, getting some of my uh, some of my tools and all dusted off and the proper materials. My endless trips to Lowe's because I always forget something and I have to go twice. But uh, I'm really looking forward to that. So I, I don't want any trouble this week. Just don't give me any trouble. And the good news is it is kind of dull because, see, when Democrats lose an election, so what tends to happen is that during that lame duck session, November, December, they just shoot for the moon. They burn the bridges before they leave. If you remember, that's what they did in 2010 before they lost the House. That's when they passed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, a whole bunch of stuff there, the New START Treaty, with Russia, and then you had in 2014 when Republicans took over the Senate, that's when Paul Ryan screwed us with the budget bill the first time around. Um, So typically, you'd expect Republicans to be burning the bridge the other way, but that's if the Republican Party would be a conservative party because they swing for the other side of the fence. Well, the more they're in session, the more they promote the other side's agenda. So I'm actually... Glad that they're not in session this week. Um, But I just know that something big is going to blow up anyway, because that's just the times that we live in. But anyway, I want to just start off with a couple of notes here. Some of you have really been sending me very thoughtful emails, lots of good information, um, lots of good stories. Don't think I see everything. I mean, I'm just one person. I don't have a staff. And there's always more for me to learn. So, you know, very helpful stuff. And this is really what I was talking about, Citizens Task Forces, a couple months ago, where there is no conservative policy movement inside Washington. The people that are supposed to be doing this professionally for a living are either not conservative, don't have any brains, don't have any guts. And we need the policymaking from the outside, just from the average citizenry that 
you know, people who work full-time jobs in other professions, but know a lot about certain issues. Um, one of you, and I'm, I'm, I apologize for forgetting your name, sent me a whole report you put out on the opioid crisis and how government is hurting pain patients and how, uh, you know, following up on my thesis that it's all the illicit drugs brought in by the drug traffickers, transnational cartels, the open borders, the sanctuary cities. Oh, and now we have the jailbreak bill to let out the drug traffickers while treating doctors like drug traffickers and pain patients like addicts when really it's the opposite. So lots of good stuff. And I, and I think this is really where we start. So, um, you know, maybe I should start giving you guys assignments. You guys are the smartest, most engaged audience I know um, for many of my colleagues who have wide listenerships, some bigger than mine, but you guys are truly the smartest out there. And I, and I really appreciate those emails. So, you know, you could always email me at dharowitz at crtv.com. I don't know why I'm starting with this today. It's just a sensitivity. It just, it just bothers me whether I'm right or wrong. And I don't even have much of a side in this. It's just said no matter what. Reading a headline here from the dailymail.com. Decorated Navy SEAL is charged with war crimes for stabbing a wounded teen ISIS fighter to death, posing for photos next to his body and performing a ceremony next to his corpse. A Navy SEAL is facing multiple war crimes for stabbing an injured teenage ISIS fighter to death while deployed in Iraq. Special Operations Chief Edward Eddie Gallagher, 39, so he's got a lot of experience there, is in custody facing multiple charges, including premeditated murder and attempted murder for allegedly slicing the combatant's throat with a hunting knife. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go through the article here. You know, I'm going to link to it in show notes. You could read it for yourself. I don't know how to say this. You know, the theme today is going to be how to look at the world through the lens of morality that Americans used to look at the world. Maybe in the World War II era, before that. The need to reset the baseline on what our national priorities are, what it means to be a nation, what it means to survive as a nation. Now, maybe I'm picking the wrong case to complain about this. There's a lot of evidence there, and you know, it's cold blood afterwards. He seems to have done this not in the act of combat. It was after they blew up a building in Mosul, and then um, the Iraqi soldiers they were working with raided that building, and they captured this 15-year-old ISIS fighter, and supposedly way afterwards when they're administering first aid because he was obviously injured, they supposedly this guy went and slashed his throat. Again, I don't, I don't know if that's true, but that, that's certainly the charge here. Um, and he's facing life in prison. And believe me, he won't get any early release credits like you know some of the people that Jared and now Trump has signed on to doing. <sighs> There's too much of this going on. I'm not saying that there's never a time to court-martial someone for doing something to an enemy. But we either have an enemy or we don't. We either have a mission or we don't. And there's something fundamentally wrong when we have a military for no other purpose than deploying it to endless 
Islamic civil wars, and that's what this is, were working on behalf of the Iranian-backed Baghdadi Shiite government that's an enemy of the United States and should be treated as such to fight ISIS, which, again, in the context of Iraq, doesn't affect us. It's nothing but bailing out Iran and their proxies from, from ISIS. We send them into the worst situations. They come back with PTSD. We spend so much money on, on care for veterans. We spend so much money on nation building for, for both sides of Islamic civil wars. We bring in hundreds of thousands of Sharia fervent immigrants that create major problems here from both Sunnis and Shias in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then now we just send them overseas to court martial. There's just too much of this going on. And maybe here it's it, it's worthy of it, but I, I, a couple months ago you saw the case where they were court-martialed a couple of guys for peeing on, on Taliban corpses. And look, I understand you need discipline in the military and you can't have people goofing off or doing certain things. But you reach a certain threshold sometimes when you're in the hell of war and you have an evil enemy where I wouldn't say go ahead and do this, but let's say they did it. There's different levels, and and sometimes you know you take care of that internally, like warn them, but you don't announce to the world. Yes, we will rip our soldiers apart for being mean to the enemy. Don't get me wrong; I I, I don't know in this, in this case maybe it's warranted, but if, if there's so much of this going on, and we take our best warriors, put them in meat grinders, and then prosecute them, really. And I understand you, you have criminal bad apples among everyone. I mean, obviously, there's this tragic story we, we see unfolding with a group of, I don't know how many Navy SEALs and Marines that murdered this Green Beret in, was it Niger? Broader question is what we're doing in that theater to begin with. So I'm not saying you can't have bad apples, but it's just, it just really, whatever it is, is a terrible tragedy because this guy was a 17-year veteran Um the best of the best alpha team of of uh, SEAL Team 7 and sniper, all sorts of decorations. This guy real, real uh, all sorts of commendations, real decorated uh, Navy SEAL. It's just, it's just sad. What is the broader vision of what we're doing? This is the question no one asks. And you know what's funny? Over the weekend... In case you wanted to know who 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 is the enemy and who is the real problem, because the world is moving very quickly. Alliances are changing. Governments are changing. Kingdoms are changing. And Qatar is now positing this alliance. Guess who's in it? Iran, Qatar, Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. <laughs> in other words, America's ally of Iraq, which isn't really our ally, and Syria, of course, Assad. Think about it. Think about it. We have soldiers on the ground in Iraq fighting for that very government. We have soldiers on the ground in Syria while we're like kind of fighting Assad, but then we're bailing out Assad from his Sunni insurgency. And then we let in migrants from both sides get our soldiers killed, PTSD, and the ones we don't that are really aggressive warriors, maybe sometimes a little bit too much, but heck, in that type of theater, you can't ever be enough. We prosecute them. 
And I mean life in prison. You know, you want to talk about, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something, folks. You want to talk about pardons and leniencies. Why was the pardon power given to the president, given to governors for state offenses? It wasn't to take entire categories of criminal law you don't like and let them out. Like, oh, I don't like too many people locked up for drug trafficking, so I'm just going to let them out. No, 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 that's not what it was there for. It was there for things like this, where someone really did do something wrong, but either he was a war hero, it was a time of unrest, the circumstances were unique. It was exactly something like this. Again, I I haven't read through all the details. Read through yourself. It sounds pretty bad, but (sighs) would Patton have done this? Would, um, I mean... The commanders, the air commanders uh, in in Japan over over the overseeing the burning down of Japan, would they have done this? I think you know the answer. At some point, we need to d- determine and define what is in our interest, and do it with full force, or don't do it at all. And it's a crying shame that there is no think tank movement or anything in Washington trying to reset the baseline on foreign policy, national security, military intervention, military policy in general, rules of engagement. We need a national discussion on this, folks. It's Orwellian what's going on. And again, this all ties back into domestic policy. Because the linchpin to constantly growing government is the fact that the left has this hostage on us that, hey, well, you want military spending, so you ain't going to get it if you don't plus up the non-defense discretionary spending and entitlements. But we have to ask ourselves, do we really need to spend this much money on so-called defense when defense is Orwellian? If you deal with simply border defense, missile defense, and have an aggressive posture using the tools of statecraft to go after our enemies with soft power, make the right alliances, go after the terror financing, as we've spoken about in numerous episodes here, you could do the right thing, address the true security threats with a fraction of the budget. And of course, you have a long-term standing military, standing deterrent. But it's the deployments, the depletion of the hardware the nation building, and yes, the VA costs. People forget when you look at the war costs, and I don't even want to call them wars because they're not wars. They're, they're social work in, a, in, a, in the worst violent war theaters. But basically, what we're doing here is putting them in these social operations to get killed all for nothing. And by the way, one other thing we do to them. So anyway, I, I sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Didn't close the loop there. The VA costs when we get them blown up. You know, we, we talk about six or so thousand casu- uh, fatalities, 7,000 in the war on terror, which isn't much of a war on terror because we let the terror into our country. But the VA costs are non-defense discretionary spending. You know that. 
the, the, the Department of Veterans Affairs is not considered defense spending. So it's not even counted among that. Tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars we're spending on our veterans because we're needlessly throwing them to the wolves. And then, of course, it's government-run health care, so you know, there's no efficiency. And by the way, one other thing we're doing, the opioids. So we send them to die for us. A lot of them come back with lifelong illnesses. And guess what? We cut off pain medication. We cut off pain medication, so-called opioids. It's very sad. Earlier this year, sometime over the summer, there was this VA reform bill that was passed, and there's one section of it that really empowers the agencies to cut off doctors who overprescribe in their view. See, one of the things going on, and, and this is not just for veterans, but in general, with the hurting and harming of pain patients, and I know we have a lot of you in the audience, people that don't have mental illness, they're not prone to overdose, they don't take heroin, they're properly prescribed, and they properly, carefully take it, and without it, they can't really live productive lives. It's not, it's a, it's a great dependency, but it's not a death spiral that is just degenerative until they overdose. So those people are being cut off very severely. And part of the problem is, so some states downright have you know, cut off prescriptions. They've mandated through statute. The federal government hasn't directly done that. You have to realize through the CDC guidelines and through other pressures like this VA bill, see, most of our healthcare is government run. And Many of you know from our episodes on healthcare that even the part that isn't really is because it's the same vendors that do both. In other words, the same healthcare conglomerates, the same insurance companies that get 60% of their revenue from Medicare, Medicaid, they administer SCHIP, VA, the Obamacare subsidies. That's 60% of their revenue. So they take the guidance from the the government influences that. So even if you're, let's say you have a so-called private plan through your work, but they're starting to not cover and doctors are starting not to prescribe and the pendulum has swung too much the other way and nobody is willing to speak out against it. Well, I will be a voice for pain patients because, and this comes full circle. Could you imagine at a time when the entire political class, including Trump, is saying we need early release and reduction of front-end sentencing on the worst drug traffickers causing this crisis. At the same time, we're going to treat pain patients like drug traffickers. It is perverse. It is Orwellian. Everything is upside down, topsy-turvy. Our military strategy, our foreign policy our healthcare policy, our criminal justice policy, our drug policy, our border policy. Criminal is victim, victim is criminal. The panacea is the cause, and the cause is the panacea. Everything is so doggone Orwellian. So frustrating. So that's with that. Now, 
I didn't mean to go so long with, with, with this case here. It just really made me so sad, this case of the Navy SEAL. But to get into this so-called First Step Act. So it has a... Finally, the text did come out. And I'm, I've been reading through it as best as I can to try to find time. Um, it's S3649, S3649, the First Step Act. Call your members of Congress and say No. No Republican should be dismantling Reagan's tough-on-crime regime that was responsible for a 70% reduction in violent crime that we are now turning the trajectory the other way. The sum total of what this bill does was very interesting if you look at the provisions. You know, I know this is going to get very confusing, but let me give you one central point to hang on to from this bill. If the Orwellian talking points were really true, if you really wanted to do what they are suggesting, but they're not doing, which is to be tough on violent criminals and to offer some leniencies or second chances for those that truly are first-time, low-level, nonviolent people. Well, first of all, you wouldn't be doing it in federal prison. Okay, we've already established that. You'd be doing that in state prison, which most states have done that already, so really you wouldn't be doing that already at all. Because we've been doing that for 15 years. It's time for stringencies. The pendulum has already swung the other way. It's just like the opioid prescribing. It's a delayed reaction. The government, the policymakers are always like that. Delayed reaction. We already have endless safety valves and jailbreaks and the prison population is plummeting. We've let all these people out. And, and we've trimmed the fat. Now, you could always find one person here or there and hear the stories. But I could find you thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that are murderers, robbers, and rapists and assaulters who belong in prison and were let out, never prosecuted, or never caught. So don't give me that. Don't give me this imbalanced focus on who's oversensed. But anyway, to the extent these people exist, what you would do is you would write the bill targeting the following people affirmatively, you'd write it in the positive. These people get time release credits or early release credits. Okay? Your phantom person smoking marijuana in college one time, being locked up for 50 years in federal prison, which doesn't exist, doesn't exist in state prison, but whatever. So fine, write, write a bill that way. I'm all for it. Okay? Well, let, let, let's write a bill that way. Reduce the sentence. Of, fine, fine, fine. What they did was the opposite. They cast a wide net that everyone gets it. And then they take out those who are ineligible through a a series of exceptions. The default should be you don't get it unless you're truly low level. Then, And we clearly define it, you get it. They don't define it in the bill. Everyone gets it except for exceptions. And the cute thing that they do in this bill is they have 11 pages of exceptions. And it looks like, wow, you know, they're really, you know, they're, they're, they're not allowing the bad guys to get it. It's only the low level. No, it's full of BS distractions. It's written, again, Orwellian. It's written as a talking point. So it has, okay, someone who commits terrorism, biological chemical warfare, blows up pipelines. Um, I don't have it in front of me now, the bill, but it's uh, uh, someone who, uh, kidnapped, convicted of kidnapping or, or assaulting a cabinet member of Supreme Court justice. And by the way, what's funny is 
So they write it all the categories of things that don't exist are very rare, or sometimes they exist. But what did what did we say before? So many of these drug traffickers and gun felons. Who is a gun trafficker and a, and a, and a drug trafficker sitting in federal prison? You're a smart audience. These are the top gangbangers. A lot of them, MS-13, La Raza Nation. A lot of them are, are foreign nationals in the federal system. These are the worst of the worst people. They're the, the ones responsible for the murder. And often, I, I have tons of cases. I'm going to try to write articles on them because they're recent people arrested. And I want to give people a sense. See, when you look retrospectively, after the fact, he already looks downtrodden. He's in prison for so long. What did he do already? Look at the current ones being arrested right now and being convicted right now. You'll see exactly who these people are. They're arrested often for arson, armed robbery, attempted murder, murder. But because the truth be told is we need criminal justice reform the other way, as Reagan named it, the Criminal Justice Reform Act of 1982, to make it easier to land convictions on violent criminals. It's so hard to land a conviction. So often they plead down or they could only nail them on the action. So often it's the action, but not what, what it actually led to because we can't prove that your act led to – so it's an assault – but we can't prove you murdered the person or you had an armed invasion of the home, but, but we can't prove you killed the person. So really often it's even worse. Often you are a murderer. A lot of these people are murderers or responsible for murders or ordered hits on people. So, so what's interesting is even on the bogus things, they wrote them very narrowly, meaning – the eligibility is broad. The exceptions are extremely tedious and narrow. So what's amazing is they say it's only someone who literally kidnaps a federal official. But there's another federal crime that's more that's going to be more common. I mean, how often does this happen? You know, someone actually does that, succeeds. Usually the FBI will catch them. But under 115A1B, there's a federal offense for threatening to assault, kidnap, or murder a federal judge or official, yada, yada. Well, that's a lot more common, and that's a big problem. Didn't we just have a pipe bomber? But he didn't actually do anything. Extremely dangerous, but no, I mean, he didn't. He was caught, right? He was caught. Under this bill, now, you know, I have to study the case, but first glance, this guy would be eligible. Even this guy. All the Antifa people that are threatening cabinet members if they're ever you know, prosecuted. Of course, they're violent people. Another interesting thing. Assault. Now, you'd think that's pretty... Um, you would think that's uh, pretty violent, right? Again, all drug traffickers are eligible. I'm not even rehashing that. You know they're all violent. But I'm saying even directly aggravated assault. So what they do is, okay, you say, well, anyone convicted of assault is, doesn't get the early release. No, it's not true. The bill only excludes, excludes those who commit, quote, assault with intent to commit murder. It's not common that you can land a conviction on that. But, but 
assaulting a, a law enforcement officer or assault resulting in serious bodily injury against a spouse, a child, that's a federal offense, assault with intent to commit rape, aggravated sexual abuse, sexual abuse, abuse of sexual contact, aircraft piracy, extortion, whatever it's part of the statute, they'd all be eligible. They'd all be eligible. Someone convicted under 2118C1 for drug-related robberies involving assault with a dangerous weapon. Violent carjacking, char- carjacking resulting in serious bodily injury. Illegal aliens serving time for drug trafficking would be eligible or serving time, frankly, for all these aforementioned things. A lot of them are ki- – most of the kidnapping charges, by the way, in the country are illegals. It's, it's just it's, – it's an illegal thing. That's what they do. And um, – even if they were caught re-entering, which is a federal crime, re-entering the country illegally, they'd still be eligible for early release. And by the way, they call the early release supervised release. They don't define what that is, another Orwellian term. So they'd also be eligible unless they were previously deported for a felony conviction. Again, remember, often we don't wind up landing the conviction. They're just arrested for that, but they're here illegally So then we just throw them out. We don't bother going through that. We just deport them. It was was very artfully and deviously written in a way that will ensure that most of the people that get the common sort of um, convictions will be eligible. And these people are violent as hell. Violent as anything. So there's that. Welcome to the United States of Orwell. You know, I, I could go on and on about this issue. We've spoken about it a lot. I just want to end with one, one other point on it. I want to show you a fresh case of what just happened. Chicago Tribune, this is from Thursday, I think. A reputed gang member was sentenced to nine years in prison Thursday for illegally selling 17 firearms, including sawed-off shotgun, shotgun and AK-47 rifle, as well as cocaine, to an undercover federal informant. Benjamin Vasquez Jr., now I wonder if he's an illegal, could very well be, sold the guns without a firearms license during a four-month period at a time of rampant gun violence in the city. Now, massive gun trafficker, massive drug trafficker this guy was. And it's in Chicago. This was in the Northern District of Illinois. Now, he was sentenced to nine years. Notice it was nine. It's not, it wasn't 50 years. It was nine years. It's not unreasonable. And this is before the jailbreak. This is current law that they say is draconian. Folks, you want to talk about why Chicago is like Chicago? Here's where it is. Everyone wonders why we have the It's people like this. He is a member, by the way, I forgot to mention, he is reportedly a member of La Raza Nation, gang member. These are the guys that the feds go after. They're not going to go after a small-time guy. They're big gangbangers. That's who these people are that they're going to let out. Sometimes they get them on more substantial things. 
Often they don't. So it's just more run-of-the-mill drug trafficking and gun trafficking. AK-47s, I mean, but do you understand the talking point? No one else is saying this. At a time when the left is going to try to really peel off suburban mothers with a safety agenda of their own on gun control, common sense gun laws, and they're going to say, shouldn't we just ban this and just this? And we could slam this back in their faces, you little idiots. You're taking guns away from law-abiding citizens while clamoring to let out gangbangers from prison and, and cut sentencing and not sentence them at all. In some cases, violent gun felons. Do you know what a magical talking point, an election issue that would be? But whoops, because we have President Jared and Ivanka, now Republicans, including Trump, have adopted that very same desideratum. Very sad. I just wanted you to know, these are the types of cases we see. I saw there was recently another one in Jacksonville. A whole gang of these guys were were, um, charged on a federal level with, again, gun trafficking, drug trafficking. But they're also charged in that case with arson and murder. I will bet you anything they don't wind up landing convictions on those things. So they will wind up sitting in prison for gun trafficking and drug trafficking. But who are they? They are murderers. Now, again, if you're not convicted, you're not convicted on it. But it. But when you're trying to retroactively early release them, it's fair to say, well, wait a minute. I know he was convicted on this, but, you know, dude, you're going to have major problems. But nonviolent level. Dorks. The United States of Orwell. So that's what we're dealing with when it comes to crime. Let's move on to our favorite topic of the courts and immigration. And by the way, just first, again, with this perverse Orwellian dynamic, when it comes to immigration, I was just talking with a friend of mine before I got on the air who took a trip down to the border to try to report on what the military was doing, particularly around Laredo in Texas. And... What was interesting is nobody at DOD or at CBP, DHS, would talk to him. And this is just another example of stupidity that the Trump administration will always get back to the liberal media as much as they have a fight with them. And this is a good setup for the Acosta court decision we're going to talk about in a minute. But they have this civil war with the media But then when push comes to shove, they'll get back to them on the issues and they won't get back to friendlies. Believe me, you're never going to get a more thorough and friendly media that will bolster your narrative at the border than you'll get from us here at Conservative Review. You'll get from our buddies at Center for Immigration Studies. And I don't understand. They just won't get back to us. I'll never forget, I talked with someone from the press office at CBP, and he was like, man, you really have this issue down pat. You really know so many aspects of this, and to tell me what you need. And I sent him a whole email with bullet points, like what I'm looking for. Never got back to me. Followed up two, two other times, ignored my, my email. This is what's happening in the Trump administration. Bizarre. But anyway, 
So on Friday, we had this uh, insane decision where you had a Republican judge, a Trump-appointed judge, to my knowledge, is the first major bad decision we've seen from a Trump appointee, Judge Timothy Kelly of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, which, by the way, is overwhelmingly liberal. And now we see one of the Republican appointees is bad. And this guy worked for the jerk Chuck Grassley for a number of years on Senate Judiciary Committee. He said that the Trump administration shall issue, must issue, a press badge to Jim Acosta. Now, I know some of you are going to say, well, it's a, he didn't rule on the merits. It was just a temporary injunction. I don't care. If you had a conservative judge you know, or, or conservatives, a certain court, that government must pay, give everyone money to purchase a gun. Okay, if we asserted that in a, in a lawsuit, do you think for a minute the courts would issue a tro and say the government must do that? This is absurd, yet even conservative judges have accepted the basic premise of the left. This case here encompasses and embodies every thesis we have posited on the entire issue of judicial supremacy, how the courts are irremediably broken, the legal profession which controls it is irremediably broken, and we're not going to solve it simply by appointing better, better judges. First, I want to mention the fact that I could not find the write-up of his case. I could not find the copy of it. So the same man who is saying that the executive branch must give access to individual reporters, he's not giving access to his decision because I can't find it on Pacer. And by the way, do we all have a right to access to his chambers that he should hold a press conference? I mean, think about it. I, I made this case in my article on Friday that... Now that we've decided that the courts are the end all and they determine every blatantly political issue, we have one branch of government. So if you're saying there's a right to, to know to the press, not a right to freedom of speech, they don't get thrown in jail, but you have an affirmative right to access the White House grounds and get a press badge. So then if the courts decide every political issue, ultimately, isn't that where it's all at with the press? I mean, shouldn't we have press conferences at the court? And should we have access to his chambers? But that's a side point. One of the things I've been telling you for so long here is that even conservative judges reared in the Federalist Society culture, they've already accepted all of the garbage until now, even if they're not going to expand on it. So the left is very smart. Even the most absurd lawsuit, they're going to couch in terms of precedent of other things. Well, we've said before that you know, once you have a process, you have to apply it equally. So yeah, well, maybe there's no right to a press badge, but if you give it to other people, you have to give it to him. And they, they'll cite other cases. And here we have a Trump appointee doing something this absurd. We no longer have a country anymore. And the reason why I say that is because we, we're not self-governing. The courts decide everything, including the border, including immigration, including the future orientation of our society. The courts are crowned king over all those decisions. Even a district judge stands atop the other two branches. They determine the Constitution. And 
as I said before, it would be bad enough if that were the case. If we all kind of agreed on the fundamentals of the Constitution, it would be dangerous, dangerous enough to vest the unelected branch of government with that sole and finer and final arbiter status of the exposition of the Constitution. But we have a crisis now where the entire legal profession, including so-called conservative judges to a certain degree, have accepted the bastardization of fundamental rights. This is very dangerous. Very dangerous. That we now have judges, even on the right, that have accepted legal positivism. Let's go back to the basics here. Fundamental rights are negative rights, right? Freedom from the government, not access to. Um, Clarence Thomas, in his dissent in Obergefell, really explained this very well because I don't care what you think about gays, gay marriage, sodomy, this and that, doesn't matter. To assert that it's a fundamental right to have access to a marriage certificate is absurd. That's not a fundamental right. It's not a fundamental right. He said, quote, the court's decision today, this was in gay marriage, is at odds not only with the Constitution, but with the principles upon which our nation was built since well before 1787, liberty has been understood as freedom from government action, not entitlement to government benefits. And he said... Our Constitution, like the Declaration of Independence before it, was predicated on a simple truth. One's liberty, not to mention one's dignity, was something to be shielded from, not provided by the state. So, in other words, I have the right to life, liberty, property, and as Sam, as Sam Adams said, the right to defend them, self-defense. And that's why... You know, I don't even like calling gun rights Second Amendment because it's more foundational than the Bill of Rights. You know, Madison believed we didn't even need that. These were self-evident rights as they understood it when the state constitutions were created before the national government and when um, the Declaration of Independence echoed, you know, the Massachusetts and Virginia Constitution's Bills of Rights. And it was understood. I look. Everything else is positive legal law, that it's subject to regulation of the state. I need them for it. I'm not entitled to it. In certain cases, you should posit they should apply certain things equally. But equal protection is equal protection for the bare minimum life, liberty, property, the negative rights. The negative rights. That's, that's what's important to remember here. So I have the right to be able to be born into parents who are already living in the civil society, which is important because you don't have a right to break into civil society. There's no right to immigrate. I have a right to be here and just live, earn a living, live with my property, and not have someone, government, beat me up, arrest me, take my property, or not allow me to defend it. And irony is it's those rights that the courts now infringe upon. You don't have negative rights. You don't have property rights anymore. You don't have conscience, which, as Madison said, is the most sacred of all property. You do not have that anymore. Sukasa, 
es mi casa. <laughs> See, your house is my house. I have a right to your property. You don't have a right to your property. I could come to your property and say, service my, engage in involuntary servitude to service my gay wedding. But you don't have the right to say, look, I, I just, look, I'm on my own business. I don't, I don't mean any harm. Just don't force me to violate my conscience. No. You don't have the right to Second Amendment. States are able to regulate the hell out of it. I don't mean basic regulations of, you know, automatic weapons, bazookas. I mean, to this day, in my home state of Maryland, the state could say, Daniel, you are not allowed to carry any sort of gun of any caliber, of any capacity, on your person, outside your house, at any time, in any place. That's that's the law here. That violates the most foundational because I, I need to protect my person, my life. What worth is it if I can't protect it? If I walk around Baltimore, which is a cesspool and you know full of crime, and you can't carry a gun of any sort, yet these very same vermin in the courts are now saying you have a right to immigrate. You have a right to gay marriage. You have a right to a visa. And now you have a right to a press badge. Again, let me explain what a fundamental right is. Senator Howard Jacob, the principal author of the 14th Amendment, when explaining why it did not include a right to vote in the 14th Amendment, remember you needed the 15th Amendment. And again, as I said before, voting is the, is the closest positive to a, to a fundamental right, but it's still, it's not fundamental. Why not? He said, the right of suffrage is not in law one of the privileges or immunities thus secured by the Constitution. It is merely the creature of law. It has always been regarded in this country as the result of positive local law, not regarded as one of those fundamental rights. Now, what's a fundamental right? He quote, here's how he explains it. One of those fundamental rights lying at the basis of all society and without which a people cannot exist except as slaves subject to a despotism. It's kind of quasi-despotic as it would be for you to take away your right to vote. It doesn't really, you know, look, my vote doesn't matter here in Maryland anyway. It's not that you're living as a slave without it. Um, Again, it's the most important positive right. But even that positive right, he said, it doesn't reach the level of, you know, without it, people cannot exist except a slave subject to despotism. How much more so when we're talking about a visa, a marriage license, and a press badge? You know, Jim Acosta could go anywhere and yelp on any show with millions of people. He could go on CNN, he could go on MSNBC, he could blog, he could do anything he want and say Trump is a dirtbag. That is freedom of speech that we've always had and always will have in this country, God willing. You don't have right to it. I, I, I wasn't given a press badge. And yet, this idiotic schmuck of a Republican judge said, quote, and I don't have it in front of me, I'm just quoting from the CNN reporters who, are, who must have seen it, Whatever process occurred within the government is still so shrouded in mystery that the government could not tell me at oral arguments who made the initial decision to revoke it. Who the hell are you to demand such information? 
And this gets back to another important thing I keep saying. Even, see, we've gone beyond what last generation's judicial supremacism is. It's bad enough to say that the courts have a final veto on the other two branches. As we spoke about many, many times in the show, that was the Council of Revision, but even then it was joint with the president. It was a system of government we didn't adopt. It was predicated on a very different system for good reason, if you understood the system they were originally um, toying with. The system we adopted was not that. There is no such veto. You could make a political argument that you should accept the judiciary's interpretation of the Constitution as more authoritative than the others. Maybe, maybe not. Certainly in our era, not. But maybe back in the 1790s, there were some that, you know, because of the French Revolution, they wanted them to serve as that check. But again, it was a political opinion. Legally, that is not what we adopted in the Constitution. But now it's worse than that. They're not only putting a negative on the positive actions of the executive branch. They're putting a positive on a negative. You must give them a visa. You must give a gay marriage license. And in this case, you must give a press badge. That's an executive function. Hey, you buddy, Timothy Kelly, you go and give a visa. Oh, whoops, you don't have that power. Whoops, you don't have the power to give a press badge. So shut shut up. We didn't ask you. What? My colleagues who think we're remaking the judiciary by simply appointing better judges don't understand. Aside from the fact that most of the time we're not flipping Democrat seats or just filling seats of good guys that retired, is one of two things are happening with Republican judges that people don't understand. Either, number one, they they at least legitimize and accept and indulge the most absurd, absurd arguments. In this case, we already see, even if he doesn't ultimately rule on the merits, he already gave them standing, forced DOJ to comply, and issued a temporary restraining order. We saw that with the global warming case I wrote about last week. The most absurd thing, granting uh, this, this Oregon judge, granting standing to a teenage, teenagers to sue the government at the force of mandating they regulate to stop global warming. And the administration appealed to the Supreme Court, and aside from Clarence Thomas and Gorsuch, they, they kind of indulged it. I don't think they're going to rule on the merits that way, but they they said, nah, let the process go through. There is nothing too absurd beyond their jurisdiction that even Republican judges will not indulge. And can, can you imagine, you know, a lower court indulging, a lower court liberal judge indulging our case that Obergefell is garbage, violating precedent? No. So either they downright agree to a lot of this stuff, which is a problem. Or even if they don't agree, often you're going to have a problem because, precisely because they were appointed by Trump and they're so worried about this notion that, oh, they're going to rule with Trump, they want to show that they're impartial. And again, that is fine when you're ruling correctly, when Trump does something wrong. But, You know, a lot of people thought this with Kavanaugh. Oh, he's going to go out of his way to screw these people. No, if you understand the culture of conservative legal eagles, they're going to want they're going to double down to try even harder to show their quote impartial. I don't know which was the case here with Kelly, whether he actually somewhat believes there's some legitimacy 
to asserting a right to a press badge or whether he deep down doesn't and he's not going to rule that way on the merits but wanted to at least show like, hey, you know, I'm judicious here. Either way, it's problematic. And either way, it proves our point that if we agree that the legal profession controls our country and we agree that there is no degree of, of bastardization of fundamental rights that is a bridge too far, no degree of absurd granting of standing that is a, that is a bridge too far, and it's legitimate and we're going to abide by it. And indeed, the administration allowed Acosta to march back in there. Trump has no sovereignty over his own press room. We got a problem. And again, folks, this is the problem going on with our border as we speak. They're not shutting down the border. They're granting asylum, even to the caravan. And certainly the people coming in quietly, 640 came in in the Tucson sector. Not, I'm sorry, not came in. I'm sure many more came in. Were apprehended in the Tucson sector over the weekend in just two days. You want to extrapolate that. 315 a day, one of 11 border sectors. See, we've been averaging like a thousand between the points of entry, about a thousand a day. You extrapolate that, that's that's several thousand. That clip. It's intensifying every month, the border invasion. They're not shutting it down. They're not using 212F and 215A and Article 2 powers to inherently stop it. They invoked it and then didn't do it. Very narrow. And then, as we speak, DOJ is in a district court begging for their lives. Can we please use statute to stop the asylum in a couple of cases that's not asylum, and they're coming in belligerently? And and that's another thing. You know, um, you now have reports in Tijuana where they're burning garbages, these Hondurans, burning garbages, smoking weed, and the people are asking them to leave. And there's a video we're going to put out in my article either today or tomorrow. And thank you, Mario. You know who you are for for sending this to me, one of our listeners. He uh, translated it for me in, from, from, from Spanish. He threatened to kill the local Mexicans. The Mexicans don't want this. If we cannot stop an invasion because we think we have to litigate it, that maybe it's asylum, there's no statute in the world you could you could write to stop this. We don't have a statutory problem. We have a brain problem with our political elites in government, even within the Trump administration. And while Trump is screwing us on crime letting in more of these uh, drug traffickers, guess what? He's not dealing with the border invasion as much as he complains about it. So that's really, really, that, that, that just really hoses me. Unbelievable. So now what's going on? What's going on here? There's two lawsuits. I mean... And this is the thing. It's like, no way. Like, come on. You're, you're going to invade our country belligerently with flags from Honduras and then file, have someone file a lawsuit to let you in when you're outside of our country? And the, did, no, DOJ is showing up 
See, this is how you give it legit. Like, let, let's say a district judge would say, um, Trump's balls, and I'm sorry for the, the crudeness here. I just, I'm just so upset. Trump's balls are unconstitutional. We're, we're striking them down. You know, they, they have the power to strike down. So, A, would Trump take out the scalpel? And B, would he send his lawyers down there to, to litigate the case? Do you give legitimacy to something like that? The court said, this is our legacy and our heritage that is the most rooted in the most ancient principles of international law. That the political branches have the sole authority to determine who comes in here, and there is no jurisdiction of the courts. The courts said this, the most uninterrupted stream of case law. And yet now they could just grant standing and we'll legitimize it. USA Today article, President Donald Trump's efforts to dramatically cut asylum applications will be challenged in two federal court hearings on Monday, which will ultimately determine how many members of the migrant caravan will be able to enter the U.S. They now control immigration policy. Hundreds of the Central American caravan members have already arrived in the Mexico, Mexican border state of Tijuana, prompting U.S. Customs and Border Protection officials on Monday to temporarily close all vehicle lanes and half the pedestrian lanes at the San Cidro port of port of entry to install additional port hardening materials. And by the way, thanks to to the sanctuary courts and our legitimacy of them, how many CBP officers aren't going to be with their families for Thanksgiving? But we don't care about those separating families. But anyway, let me continue. But the court hearings will determine how many of the caravan members will be able to legally request asylum or write written into U.S. law and international conventions. See, it's not true. A they're um they were offered in mexico so that's international b u.s law is may issue it's not shall issue c there's an override switch that you could always shut off any form of immigration and d they're not asylees you don't need it it's not gestatiable it's not like if i go up to a border patrol agent with my fist in his face and say i'll beat you up if you don't give me asylum i'm not entitled to a court case well, we have to see. Maybe you're an asylum. No, 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 you're not. You're prima facie. If an army comes and invades our country, you don't like take them to an immigration judge. Well, maybe they're asylees. I don't know. Maybe they are. You know? What? Jeez, we're so stupid. But anyway, um, this is where we are. The ACLU controls the country. They control the country. So, so sad. Welcome to the United States of Orwell. We don't matter. Our laws don't matter. Our borders don't matter. Every policy from the elites is upside down, inside out. I could go on forever with examples, but this is what we have have for today. And and by the way, just another, you know, stolen sovereignty narrative. Another narrative of how we violate the basic tenets of the social compact that we get to determine who comes in, who becomes a, a member of our society and controls the ultimate destiny of our, you know, our entire nation, our society. So there's a lot of talk in the news recently about Orange County, California. Now, what are they saying? That until recently, every... Republican congressman, you know, it's a huge county, so there were like seven or so congressmen from Orange County who are Republicans. Then they picked off two fairly recently. And now 
they clean cleanly swept out every single Republican. I guess there were five more or so that now there's not a single Republican left in the breadbasket of Republican voters in California from the Reagan era. That was Reagan territory, Orange County, California. Now, if you understand, it's no enigma what happened there. It's no enigma at all. As late as 1988, George H.W. Bush won more than twice as many votes as Dukakis did in Orange County. It was like 63, 35 or something. As late as 2004, when the broader state of California was long gone, but at least Orange County, George W. Bush won it by 20 points. Republicans narrowly carried it in 08 and 2012, and then downright lost it by eight points in 2016. And that's, that's where we are today. Now, what happened? It's no enigma. In 1980... 12.7% of the county was foreign-born. In 2016, an estimated 30% of the county was foreign-born, and 45.6% of all residents speak a foreign language at home. It's lost forever. Now, granted, some of this, some of the extra, meaning the over and beyond 2016 blue wave is due to losing white, suburban, affluent voters... But I would argue, A, some of that is a lot of the Republican ones moved out over the years. So it's not so much necessarily red turning to blue. It's just they left and you're left with the blue. But also, this is a lot of it is built upon this floor of foreign nationals. So it changes the culture, it changes the politics, and it makes everyone liberal, especially those that remain. And again, you know, the general native vote is going to wax and wane, and this is going to wane for Republicans because it was a low point. It was a bad year. But you, but the point is, even if it would be a bad year, they still would have won it, in, if not for the immigration that we never voted for. And a lot of it was driven by the 86 amnesty. The, this is a violation of the social contract. We live in an Orwellian nation. Anyway, i got to run down to D.C. now. So much more to talk about, but it's bad. And we need to work on establishing our own brand to reset the baseline on every one of these issues, immigration, courts, judicial supremacy, foreign policy, military intervention, healthcare, the opioid crisis. I have an article out I'll link to in show notes because I didn't get a chance to talk about it on Friday on how the Freedom Caucus needs to issue a Declaration of Independence and establish their own branding. And I want to build upon that. And I really think, starting with our own audience, there's a lot you can do with citizens task forces. I think they can marshal the grassroots to do policy work for them. Again, in, in an unofficial capacity. Because part of the problem is, you know, it's small. They don't have a lot of money. You remember, House members really don't have a lot of money for their budget. So if you create your own caucus, you need to, it's going to come out of your own office. Each person has to give a little bit to create the staff. And my understanding is they still only have two staffers, one policy and one comms. So I'm going to be talking with some of them, how to marshal the public, hold some of these field hearings 
in the public. Expose some of the stuff we expose in our show. And we're going to take it to a new level. So anyway, we're going to have at least one more show before the break. I don't know when, Tuesday or Wednesday. I want to try to get Chip Roy on to get his take as a new member or incoming member. Um, but look, you know, we're not going to sugarcoat this. The only way to come up with a solution is to recognize the severity of the problem. And the severity is so severe that everything is upside down and inside out. So, you know, I know some of you are a little bit upset, you know, that you want more positive news. We'll try to look for it. But for now, we got to speak the truth. And that's what you're going to get from me. God bless. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.